In this episode of the Emergence Podcast, we talk to Dr. Matthew Stone, Deputy Director General, International Standards and Science from the World Organization of Animal Health. And we'll talk to him about how the OIE are dealing with the impact of COVID-19. Welcome to the Emergence Podcast, brought to you by MSD Animal Health and hosted by me, Alistair King. The views expressed during this podcast are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the company. I'm very lucky today to be joined by Dr. Matthew Stone, Deputy Director General, International Standards and Science for the World Organization of Animal Health, the OIE. I first met Matt a number of years ago. It was when we were at the CCFMD and he was the New Zealand delegate to the OIE for the Asia, Far East and Oceania region. And the CCFMD meeting, Southeast Asia and China, foot and mouth disease. It was a great meeting to just get to know everyone, see what was happening with FMD control and understand how the different countries were working together. So I'm very pleased I've got an opportunity to talk to him about what the OIE are doing to deal with COVID-19 and how they see the impacts of that on the industry. I'm really pleased to be joined by Matt Stone, the Deputy Director General of the OIE. It's great that you're able to give me some time to talk about COVID-19 in such an important time for both human and animal health. There's an awful lot of things going on. So thank you for joining us, Matt. Well, it's a great pleasure, Alistair, and hello to all your listeners. And we've got a whole load of things I'm really interested to learn about what, what the OIE is doing. But the first thing I've got to ask, is everyone okay? You're based in Paris. You've been in lockdown for quite a while. Is, is everyone in the OIE doing okay? Yeah, it's a, it's a really challenging time. Uh, France, just like uh, the USA, has been very heavily hit by this uh, pandemic. So the situation here in, in France, about 150,000 cases as we talk and over 17,000 deaths. So inevitably, uh, some of that has had a, a personal impact here on, on our staff. So the, the issues for us have been really about staying in contact with people, looking after their well-being, ensuring that they feel connected. The other thing we have to recognise is that our staff come from all around the world. Many of them are here on secondment. Some of them have only just arrived. Uh, many of them might not speak French very well. So providing that sort of support uh, and, you know, I'm being so impressed by all our managers uh, just working really hard to stay connected, to make sure that people have something to do. We're not pushing productivity as a, as a message, but certainly work helps to pass the time in confinement. Uh, so ensuring that people have something something to do uh, and they're getting the support from their managers that they need. That's been our focus. That sounds good. I think we're, we're all recognising those kind of things, looking after the people who are healthy as well as the people who, who are sick. But being aware of all those pressures is really important. It's nice to know you're doing that. You're also experiencing COVID-19 in, in a very personal way because of people being affected and everything. So you're very aware of that human impact. One of the things that worries me is we're so focused on the human impact that we're going to miss potentially some of the animal impacts for the future, which are important for our food security and things like that. What is the OIE doing in response to COVID-19 at the moment? Well, exactly the point that you made, that that sort of operates, that the response to that question operates at multiple levels. Uh, we're certainly thinking about the the future and the, uh, I sort of characterise them as the one health root causes of this pandemic uh, and 
and how we can respond to that. And uh, I'm very happy to talk about that a little bit more as well. Uh, but of course, our tripartite relationship with the World Health Organization, with the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, this tripartite partnership is extremely important. And the relationships extend into areas of preparedness and crisis management, uh, and of course, uh, into the areas of uh, of emerging disease. And, and so right from the outset, we've been working very closely with WHO as, as the lead agency in this global response. Uh, and we've 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 been supporting WHO uh, from a communications perspective. I was reading just recently, uh, Dr. Tedros, uh, Director General of uh, WHO, had talked about the infodemic, the surplus of information, not all of it correct, uh, and getting key messages right, staying on point with key messages, and ensuring that what we're disseminating through our networks is is on point and not detracting from the key public health messages right at the moment. And yeah, there's lots of interesting stuff going on in animals. Of course, we 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 designated COVID-19 in animals from the outset because of the SARS experience, because of the MERS experience. We wanted to create a mechanism for official reporting of disease. COVID-19 in animals was designated as an emerging disease in accordance with the OE framework and therefore reportable. And so we've been getting the, the official reports from Hong Kong, uh, from Belgium, uh, from the USA about animal events there and, and that's enabled us to feed that in uh, to the uh, international intelligence network uh, and also disseminate it to our to our members internationally. The other really important thing was tapping our expert network, our wildlife uh, working group, working group on wildlife uh, and our reference centre network has allowed us to draw together right from the early stages uh, a network of experts. We've got WHO and FAO participating in there, really focused on the issues around COVID-19 at the human-animal ecosystem interface. And that group was invited in and led the WHO research and development blueprint process. They led what has become Research Priority 2, which is focused on the human-animal ecosystem interface. And really, it's quite a, uh, you know, to have produced that document, uh, the R&D blueprint, as it's called, uh, within the first four to six weeks or so of this pandemic, and to look back on it and see how interesting, right on point and engaged that uh, that document is, as a means of driving the international research effort, uh, has been uh, really, uh, well, it was very important, I, I think. So that the OAE has been working right from the outset with WHO here. I think that this is interesting you mentioned about the information thing. Our approach was very much, there's so much information out there and not all of it is accurate. We didn't want to be just feeding into that pure noise that was going on. So we, we have st stayed a little bit further away possibly than some people expected us to, but that was a conscious effort on our part. Yeah, that's really interesting, Alistair. And actually, one thing I should have mentioned was the, the Q&A page, the question and answer page on our website, because with the help of our expert group, we got that Q&A page up very early in the response, uh, and it's been maintained with accurate information. Uh, and it's, we're not 
building too much additional information around it. At the bottom of the Q&A page, there are links to the meeting reports of various expert groups that we've been running and the products that they've been creating. But one of the key things for the expert groups is to provide advice to, to us to ensure that the Q&A is actually accurate, up-to-date, maintained with the best uh, risk management, risk communication advice uh, that we can provide at the moment. And so most of our other work on social networks or whatever is really directing people, our audience, to that Q&A page or, or the different products that are, that are produced on it. That's really handy to know. So I'll try and make sure we get a link somewhere so people can see where they can go to find that. Mm. Because, yeah, that's going to be the really up-to-date stuff. So that's great. You mentioned about the, the sort of human animal interface and the One Health kind of side, that's very important that we look at that. But with all of this focus currently on COVID-19, everyone's worried about that. Do you, as the OIE, do you have concern about impact on, on other diseases? Because possible things like vaccination campaigns now get delayed. I know UNICEF has been worried about measles. They think there may be an uptick in measles cases because there's a drop in vaccination against that. Do you think that's going to be potentially the same for especially transboundary emerging diseases like African swine fever, which we know is already a problem, foot and mouth disease, lumpy skin disease, these kind of things? It could be, and it's a big concern. Um, but let me talk about two things in particular that I think provide a degree of optimism here. Uh, the first is that, uh, again, very early on when this thing was blowing up, uh, we worked closely with our partner, World Veterinary Association, and released a statement uh, in relation to veterinary services as an essential service in society, both in terms of ensuring the food chain and uh, animal welfare issues as well. Uh, you know, we know that vets have a number of roles from clinical to the pharmaceutical industry to, to regulatory uh, roles. Uh, and so it was a broad-based statement across all of these roles. And it's been really heartening to see that uh, many uh, countries, our members internationally, have also picked up on that message and brought forward the idea that veterinary services are essential services. And it's obviously it's important that within uh, the need to respect hygiene protocols associated with COVID-19 so that veterinarians uh, can't be accused of controlling contributing to the spread of the disease, but they need to access properties, they need to access animals, they need to turn up at work in vaccine manufacturing plants, uh, they need to uh, turn up for, for their roles in meat inspection and, and, uh, and food safety to keep the, the food networks running. Um, so that, that statement about veterinarians as essential services is, is really important. The other thing that's really heartening for me is that uh, we haven't seen at all a slowdown in, in terms of the official notifications coming to us through our OIE World Animal Health Information System, WAHIS, as we call it. Just over the last two weeks, in fact, there's been around about 20 or so really important immediate notifications. So we can see, for instance, that a lot of countries 
well, there's, there's so much going on internationally at the moment. Uh, the African horse sickness outbreak in Thailand, African swine fever outbreak in Papua New Guinea. We've got highly pathogenic avian influenza outbreaks in, in a number of countries, uh, Europe, uh, USA uh, as well. Um, so there's uh, a lot going on, but the notifications are still happening. So that tells me that the veterinary services are still getting out, uh, able to take uh, diagnostic samples and uh, and report and in these situations. Now, whether or not there's uh, an impact that's happening for some of our uh, longer-term pro uh, programs, you know, you mentioned African swine fever, uh, we could talk about foot and mouth disease, pest petit ruminant, uh, all of these, uh, the, la the latter two, FMD and PPR, certainly dependent on mass vaccination programs targeting uh, campaigns at different times, uh, and the the surveillance monitoring that goes with those vaccination campaigns to ensure that they're, they're done well. Whether or not we're seeing, uh, we're going to see uh, in the future that COVID-19 has had an impact on these, it's hard to know. Uh, right now, we're in the process of replanning some of what we called our uh, standing group of experts or regional roadmap meetings, all the, the sorts of regional meetings that, that go with these global programs, uh, which is our opportunity to really seize intelligence from the field uh, on each of those programs, that's going to really be the time when we see how much impact there's been on these programs. A lot of these meetings would normally run as face-to-face -face meetings and they're being uh, they're in the process of being converted into uh, web-based uh, meetings now. So that's also a challenge uh, around these global programs. Yeah, we follow WAHESA. In fact, when we get notifications on Wahis, we, we put those on our Twitter channel as well, Emergence Twitter channel, so that people can see them. And I had noticed we were still getting those those new ones coming in. I have to admit, for me, surveillance seemed a really concerning thing. There may, may be a lack of focus. So that's reassuring to know that we that still seems to be happening and coming in at the kind of rates we would normally expect. It is bringing that One Health kind of picture into focus do you think that this experience may actually raise awareness of One Health issues more for the future? And I look at something like rabies, which you know we know kills around 70,000 people a year, at least it's probably more because of underreporting, but it, it doesn't get the focus sometimes it seems to need. It's a neglected tropical disease. Do you think that this may change that kind of future as well? I certainly hope so. What I would hate to think is that this major response around COVID-19 uh, repeats the cycle of, uh, as the World Bank has characterised it, the pandemic cycle of panic and, and neglect. And we've got to get away from that sort of idea. We've got to start thinking about the, the One Health root causes. And certainly for the OIE, this is a, a really important opportunity for us to, to think about our work programs, our One Health work programs, how we're partnering in those, how we're positioning those, whether or not we can leverage the understanding that's this COVID-19 international response has has uh, generated about One Health root causes, the impact uh, of how our societies are impinging on natural ecosystems and the risks that we confront uh, as, as we do that. 
Alistair, you and I know you're talking about rabies uh, and we've had a, a global effort here and we've been trying to raise awareness. We've been trying to raise the funds that we need uh, to support uh, a large number of countries to, to get on top of their dog-mediated uh, rabies problems internally because of the big challenge around uh, human deaths, uh, of uh, many of those deaths are uh, in children. So rabies is a great example where I would love to see uh, this broader focus on uh, infectious diseases emerging from One Health uh, challenges uh, and to really see a broad-based uh, root causes effort here. The international programs like rabies, uh, like Ebola uh, and like uh, and avian influenza and others uh, need to go on, but we also need a strong examination of root causes uh, and we're, we're preparing that uh, around, uh, in particular, the issues around the wildlife uh, supply chain and trade. I mean, there's a, a big call about a need to look at that uh, it's been fantastic that China, for instance, has reacted with a, a temporary prohibition that we'll see what that becomes in the future. But we also need to recognise that prohibitions alone probably aren't the answer here. We need uh, a more, an intelligent look at the, the way these supply chains are operating, the, the, the way that the people involved in these supply chains uh, can be uh, perhaps diverted into uh, a less risky means of uh, achieving their livelihood on a daily basis. And we know that they're doing this uh, really from a, uh, often from a survival perspective. All of these things need to, uh, we, we need to examine this from a scientific perspective, uh, a socioeconomic perspective, uh, and then plan a series of interventions that are both uh, regulatory and non-regulatory interventions working together. I think it's very easy for people to talk about certain behaviours need to stop. You know, there was a whole, there's been a lot about talk of types of markets in China and things like that. It is very easy to, especially from a Western point of view, go, oh, that's terrible and it shouldn't happen. But we have to remember that is people's livelihoods and often very poor people living in poverty, families who, if they, they're struggling to get food every day. So we can't just make that broad sweeping statement. We need to understand how that all ties in, which I think is what you're talking about there. Absolutely. And uh, there's, there's all of that that you've, you've referred to. But there's also the cultural aspects uh, when, you know, often we're talking about practices that have been part of different cultures for a long, long time. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, we can all relate to that when, when something that we hold dear uh, is challenged and someone tells you that you can't do it, that's, that's going to trigger a, a, a reaction. Um, yeah. And so you have to work work around that and, and, and bring the people with you. You have to, uh, you have to ensure that they understand the, the system that they're operating uh, and the risks that that system is creating, uh, and you have to present them some feasible alternatives. That gives us quite a lot of work for, for the future. You mentioned Ebola and you mentioned wildlife. I know that the OIE have the the Ebo Circe project. I'm not sure if that's exactly how you pronounce it, but it is. You're looking. Oh, good. That's good. <laughs> you're you're looking to strengthen detection systems in wildlife in Africa, and that's focusing on hemorrhagic disease such as Ebola, Marburg, Rift Valley, Crimean Congo, and Lhasa. Are you leveraging some of that then for what you're now doing with the COVID-19? 
Indeed we are, uh, and it's a, a really excellent project. It's, uh, it's three years into a five-year program funded by uh, the European Union and working in 10 countries in Africa, uh, West Africa and Central Africa. And as you just said, Ebola is one of the focus areas here, but because uh, we need to make this relevant to all the countries in the region, uh, and not all of them uh, have experienced Ebola outbreaks, but all of them do have uh, this range of hemorrhagic fevers that uh, that you just mentioned. Uh, and so it's got a, a broad base. The, the objectives there are, are strengthening uh, surveillance networks. Uh, we're doing that uh, in uh, a range of ways where where the, the surveillance capacity, there's a lot of training and education going on. We're using our the OAE's typical methods of laboratory twinning, so building up laboratory, so technical capability in some of the countries through partnering uh, with uh, a, a parent laboratory uh, with that expertise. There's a lot of awareness raising going on, uh, and there's a lot of uh, workshop going on that uh, workshopping going on that's bringing together veterinary services, wildlife services, and public health services developing those relationships that might be completely absent or might be embryonic and building on that to uh, to really raise community awareness and develop the surveillance protocols for the viral hemorrhagic fevers uh, that are needed. So it's a, a really great project uh, and it's having a big impact. We're working closely with uh, a range of scientific partners, so three scientific agencies uh, here in France are our partners in the in the project, and they they are each taking on particular geography and building up the 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 expertise in those geographies. And then on the ground in the countries, there's a lot of local implementing partners as well, because to get the message across in a lot of these countries, you can't just build a web page and expect people to come. There's a lot of community outreach and participative approaches to uh, the awareness raising. Uh, there's a lot of, we've, we've built specific communication products uh, such as card games or board games, radio plays and, and plays uh, that go out into communities. And, and so there's all these other forms of outreach that uh, that are specific to the local context, and and you need to work with that sort of mindset to make it locally relevant and and use the approaches that uh, your partners on the ground tell you work in those local settings. And that's we're we're absolutely wanting to build that. We've we've already had a request from our funding partner, the European Union, to think about how we could leverage our experience in the Ebo Circe project uh, to explore the issues at the uh, at the uh, root cause of, of COVID-19. Uh, so uh, that's what we're doing. We're we're uh, we're wanting to. We're not want looking to jump to print quickly. We want to do this in a uh, systematic and methodical way uh, to engage the partners that we know we need to, our members, the member countries, uh, our tripartite partners, our scientific partners, our resource partners, build something that uh, we hope will uh, be uh, an enduring program that really gets to some of the heart of the issues at the human-animal ecosystem interface, in particular related to the wildlife uh, supply chain. I know, I mean, I, I should say that 
at the right at the moment, there's a great deal of uncertainty about uh, the root causes of COVID-19. That has to be said. Uh, we don't know, for instance, the the uh, intermediate host and and the scenarios that really played out to transfer the 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 COVID-19 virus from their uh, hypothesised. A reservoir host uh, the bats into humans. We we there's a lot that we don't know uh, about those scenarios. Of course, uh, the Wuhan seafood and and wildlife market uh, became an early cluster, and that's where a lot of the focus has been, and that's. Uh, led to a lot of uh, speculation about uh, the 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 root causes. But regardless, uh, let's just recognise that. The way wildlife sub trade supply chains are operating and interfacing with wet markets for food supply uh, creates a, a huge risk uh, that needs to be managed better. Uh, and so that's where we want to put our focus. You, you made me really smile there when you're talking about the board games and everything. We've we've certainly played around with radio scripts and things for communication. We've been doing comics for children to learn. Again, that was about rabies in Haiti. Exploring those things. I know one of our partners in Tanzania that we work with has been doing a board game for FMD, foot and mouth disease, to try and get the message across properly. So that really pleases me to hear that the OIE is, is exploring that kind of area as well. That's that's wonderful. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll make sure you've got the link to our webpage on the Ebo Circe uh, project as well, because a lot of the comms products uh, there, which are you know pictorial uh, around the the viral life cycles for these pathogens and, and sort of the messages for how we want the surveillance chains to operate, uh, all done in a local setting. Uh, they're they're really visually engaging and they transmit a lot of information really quickly. And I, I think they're brilliant. So I'll make sure you've got the web link to put uh, on this link as well. That'd be great. We'll share that on our emergence website. Yeah, the emergence website at the moment is just being redone. We're, we've revamped it and hit a minor roadblock. So it's taking slightly longer than we expected, but that'd be perfect for it. You mentioned speculation. There's a lot we don't know. I, that's one of the reasons why... I, I think it's important that we're careful about what we say. There's so again, we go back. There's so much information going around. We've got to base what we do and decisions make on science, not on speculation. You said about the surveillance. You're picking up. You're looking for COVID nineteen in in animals. What we've seen is a couple of animals have been picked up with COVID. I've read of those. There's no evidence that in the normal situation, COVID nineteen is coming across to to humans from animals, though, is there? Yeah, that's a really important key message. At the moment, COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic is being driven by human-to-human -human transmission. Uh, and there's, that is absolutely central to everyone's understanding about the imperatives in this response. What we have seen, though, is two dogs in Hong Kong, one cat in Belgium, uh, and a tiger in the United States being reported as field observations. We're also now seeing, and this is part of uh, the connections that we're building uh, within the expert groups that we're running, we're also seeing the early, the early results coming through from animal susceptibility transmission experimental studies. Uh, and that's indicating that uh, cats and ferrets 
are, are certainly susceptible and that thankfully at this stage uh, the livestock species that have been tested at this stage that's poultry and pigs are, are, are not uh, susceptible. Um, so this in itself is is interesting from a number of angles. One, the the most obvious one is when we think about the strategic objectives of if we're trying to control this outbreak, are animals uh, an important source of transmission? And and they're not. Uh, so that that's very clear. But the other interesting aspect here uh, is that. As we understand animal susceptibility, that helps us to think about experimental models for vaccine development, for drug therapies, and and all of that. So that's a very interesting angle uh, coming out of these transmission studies. But the other interesting thing is uh, also when we think about protecting endangered species and and the, the families of animal species that are demonstrating susceptibility, we need to be quite aware of what we call reverse zoonosis. In fact, uh, you know, humans infecting animal species are when the, those are in threatened or uh, in a threatened state or in a protected situation. Uh, so uh, building the, uh, the, the protocols uh, uh, for the, the human workers uh, in those sorts of situations in zoos or in other facilities. So lots of interesting aspects coming out of the animal work, but the very clear message is that human-to-human transmission is driving the pandemic. And the issues that we're seeing with uh, the food chain and the disruptions to food chain, uh, food chains and international food supply and the challenges for food security that that creates, um, all of that is being driven by supply chain disruption. It's, it's not being uh, driven out of uh, concerns about what we would call sanitary or phytosanitary risk, uh, where those food products or uh, the way they're being uh, sent, uh, you know, the way the food chains are operating around the world uh, are creating transmission risks. That's a very clear message that's come out of our expert groups. One of them is very focused on safe trade. Uh, we're connecting up with our members uh, where there are centres of excellence around risk assessment, monitoring all this information very closely, creating their own national risk assessments, and the OAE is drawing this expertise together uh, to create to come up with a, a unified view, a global view around uh, continuity of food supply chains uh, and the risks associated uh, with uh, safe trade at the moment. And uh, it's very clear to us that the the uncertainty that we're living with at the moment means that we can't say that uh, there's there's no risk. We can never say that. It's just not it's not an important one at the moment at this stage of the uh, pandemic. Just want to re- just confirm what you're saying there because I know looking at the, in the shops there's a lot of a lot of panic buying. Everyone's stocking up and everything. What I've seen from what I know of what's going on, I don't see how this should COVID nineteen should lead to a major risk to food safety, food security for the future and. I think that's what you're saying as well. That actually, the, the that supply should still still su- be safe and continue. Absolutely safe uh, from uh, from a scientific risk perspective, uh, and therefore the logistical issues that uh, the international, local, and international supply chains are experiencing. We need to find ways to ensure that the essential workers that are operating all the way from caring for animals and animal production facilities uh, through processing, through uh, distribution uh, and into retail, that the 
the humans are, are, are protected and can go to work, uh, but uh, it's not the food that they're, uh, or it's not the animals or the food that is the threat. It's the human-to-human -human contact in those working environments that uh, creates the challenge and, and helping businesses to find ways of working that, that overcome those challenges is, is critical uh, to keeping the food supply chains open. I was wondering if the OIE is already looking at what the new normal might be. You know, this COVID-19 is going to have an impact on what we're doing uh, for the future. It's, it's raised a lot of things. So is that already part of where you're looking is at how things like animal movement and animal health may be affected by this for the future? Well, I think all of us individually, and, and there's starting to be a lot of collective conversations about this uh, fascinating topic, we're all turning our minds to uh, what the world's going to look like when we emerge from uh, confinement. Uh, there'll be a, a slow rebuild. It won't be back to business as, as, as usual. We need to take this opportunity for to think carefully about the reset that international food systems need to achieve long-term sustainability and, and in particular looking at the environmental impact that we're having. So uh, uh, I, there's, there's no focused effort going on in OE specifically around that, but I know that collectively there's a lot of intellect uh, being diverted to those important questions uh, and uh, the OE certainly wants to uh, ensure that we're part of the solution uh, in the future. You know, we've already been thinking about how to support our members with a focus on animal health because that's, that's, that's where we play. To ensure that uh, the way animal health is contributing to the global food supply, but of course animals are contributing in much more ways than that to societies, uh, food and fibre and traction and companionship. Uh, but all the ways that we're managing animals, that we're doing it in the most sustainable way from, from a long-term perspective. I think that's very important. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's something that when we emerge from this uh, period of confinement, those conversations are really going to start in earnest at that stage. It's quite hard to uh, have them in any meaningful way as an organisation when we're really focused on supporting our people through this, keeping some degree of continuity in our programmes, and yes, uh, starting to think about the future, uh, but I think that's probably going to come a, a little bit further down the track. And at the moment, while, while we're dealing with COVID-19 and everything is this you know, a lot of countries in lockdown of different levels and things like that what do you think is the role of the animal health community okay well that's that's a, a big question we well we all need to play our part in terms of respecting uh, the regulatory frameworks that are operating in wherever we are so that's playing our part in terms of social responsibility uh, for this uh, public health response we need to care for our animals. We need to look after their welfare. We're a little bit disturbed to see some of the issues around when cats and dogs, uh, through the reports that we talked about, were implicated, that that uh, immediately created some uh, some challenges with uh, uh, abandonment of, of animals in some areas. So animal welfare uh, from for pets is, is very important. And that extends into uh, in livestock production, uh, ensuring that we're protecting workers 
and making it safe for them to go to work to care for their animals uh, is very important. And uh, you know that whole idea of veterinary services and, and essentially the food chain as part of the essential framework of, of our societies uh, and uh, our responsibility to keep that running in a safe way uh, during this, this response is, is probably uh, those are the issues that come front of mind uh, in response to your question, Alistair. You talked about cats and dogs and the worry people had after some of the reports. So we've already talked about it, but again, it's just really good to reiterate this thing that, yes, there are reports about animals being susceptible, but those are scientific reports of susceptibility in many ways. And what that means is a completely different thing, and that's not always obvious to the general public. So susceptible is one thing. Whether they're involved in causing disease and everything is a completely different issue. And basically, at the moment, there's no indication we need to have any real concern there at all. I I completely agree then. That is a a key message. Uh, Animals are not what we would say epidemiologically significant uh, in this response. They're not spreading uh, the disease. When The other interesting thing uh, for our members, our veterinary services internationally here, uh, is that when these issues surfaced about uh, the recognition that cats and dogs uh, are are susceptible or can be infected, we we had a lot of requests for testing uh, of pets or uh, our members are telling us that this is an important issue confronting their veterinary services in their different countries. It's actually quite a challenge. We've got an expert group working on this at the moment, coming up with some guidelines around when, if ever, it might be appropriate to test animals. And let me tell you that, you know, the the circumstances where it might be important to test an animal are very few. They, They would relate to specific issues associated with the humans in in households or in contact households where those animals might be. But certainly if uh, if any of your listeners are um, uh, self-isolating as a result of having been uh, confirmed with COVID-19, then the message that we're saying is the pets should be kept indoors as well, allowing your your, your pets to roam free. It's, It's not necessary to go and ask a veterinarian to test your pets. That's not necessary. But uh, general advice of keeping them indoors, if there's humans infected in that household, then uh, keeping your pets indoors is is wise. I know you've got another meeting coming up. I'm really grateful for your time. Just before you have to go, you've already mentioned those expert groups. Can you just reiterate what the focus of the OIE expert groups is during COVID-19 for this outbreak? Okay, so we the OE has used its institutional framework. We call these our expert groups. We call them ad hoc groups. So we've got an ad hoc group uh, that is focused on the human animal ecosystem uh, interface. That's the group that was supporting the WHO research and development process, uh, and uh, it's uh, linked into the animal susceptibility studies. All the new information about uh, animal events is, is being triaged, assessed through that group, and it's then ensuring that our advice uh, on our Q&A on our website is kept up to date. That group formed two subgroups to look at specific issues. One of those issues was uh, when it became clear that diagnostic capacity uh, was a key bottleneck uh, for the public health response, then a lot we were getting messages that a lot of our members were considering how to convert 
animal health diagnostic laboratories into processing diagnostic samples from humans to help the public health response. So a subgroup was formed in a specific piece of guidance also on our website about the considerations in that process of converting an animal health laboratory into providing public health diagnostic testing. So that was a specific subgroup with a specific product. A second subgroup from that uh, first ad hoc group is, is also operating now looking at issues around animal testing. It's coming up with case definitions for animals that would support the international notification into the World Animal Health Information System. But it's also advising on the policies that uh, might be uh, useful around animal surveillance, when to test an animal, as I just mentioned before. So that's uh, an interesting subgroup as well. Our second ad hoc group is focused on safe trade, uh, and uh, it is uh, monitoring the risk assessment activity in our members and coming up with global advice in relation to safe trade in animals and animal products. And at this stage, the SPS risks, the sanitary, phytosanitary risks, are negligible, we'd say, uh, and so not important. Uh, and there's no justification for specific COVID-19 risk management measures targeting animals or animal products. That's, that's the advice that that group has come up with. Its report is not yet on our website. It will be in the next few days because it met for the last week uh, by teleconference, of course, uh, and uh, its, its advice is, is, uh, will be published in the next few days. As we wrap up, what would be the key message that you'd want listeners to go away with? The key message is, is that there is an international network that is operating in a multilateral framework, member countries joining together uh, to create international standards and the best possible guidance and advice that's informed by the best scientific expertise that we can draw from there uh, from our members. So that system... Uh, this multilateral system that the OE is part of, that the WHO is part of, that FAO is part of, all of this uh, needs the support uh, of uh, our membership to survive and be active and be there to help the world cope with these sorts of crises that uh, we're dealing with now and that will continue to emerge periodically into the future if uh, the lesson of history is anything to go by. Thanks, Matt. It's been really enjoyable chatting to you. Some really information, good information there. Really, I've I've learned from listening to you what's going on. I think it's very reassuring to hear hear the activities. So, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Alistair, and thanks to your listeners for listening. Well, I hope you enjoyed that talk with Matt as much as I did. I know this podcast's been longer than normal. But I think Matt had some really important information for us, and it was great to have that chance just to ask him those questions. I'll put the links to the sites he mentioned in the episode notes, and I'll also link to a webinar on COVID-19 that our swine team produced last week. For now, thank you for listening. Stay safe. Goodbye. <laughs>